You're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. John Mitchell is an investigative journalist, originally from Wales, but he's living in Japan now, working for the newspaper Okinawa Times. He's in town to share his documentary, Nuchi Numichi, Water of Life. It's about how those living in Okinawa are dealing with forever chemicals in their drinking water. Since 2016, the drinking water for Okinawans has been contaminated with forever chemicals. It's 450,000 people. Uh, their water has been poisoned uh, by PFAS forever chemicals from one of the military bases on Okinawa. So for the past seven years now, I've been investigating how the military contaminated the drinking water for an entire island, um, the island of Okinawa. So I've been working with Okinawan television station and also Okinawan. I write for an Okinawan newspaper. And we made a documentary last year and it's called Nuchi Numiji, Okinawa's Water of Life. And we're really, really happy to be bringing this documentary to Hawaii uh, because the water here is at risk the water here has been contaminated. So we really hope by screening this documentary in Hawaii that people here will be able to understand that they are not alone, that this contamination has occurred in Okinawa, and hopefully people will be able to draw some similarities, and also they'll be able to draw some lessons uh, from how the military has handled this problem in Okinawa. And so, you know, here in Hawaii, we've been grappling with uh, fuel in our uh, water over at Red Hill. Uh, there are military families uh, and businesses that were affected by that. But the PFAS thing is something fairly new on the scene, and so we're learning about it. We're learning it's in everything that we kind of interface with on a daily basis. And so it is a little scary. And so you, you want to, you know, understand they did not r- realize the dangers way back when, and now we do. And so now they're testing for it. Uh, so, so talk about the situation there in Okinawa. The military has been aware of the problems with these firefighting foams for decades. And they've known about the risks of these chemicals. And this has been widely reported, especially by the Environmental Working Group, that famous environmental group in the United States. And they've got records from the military. They've got records from the manufacturers of these foams. And it shows that they are toxic. And it shows that they build up in the human body. So for the military to say they've only just realized that these foams are toxic, it's not true. Well, I mean, to to say that they don't, break down though i think i think that's i think the the thing that people are wondering about it lasts forever that's why they call them forever chemicals when we take these chemicals into our body they build up in our bodies for example a child if a child is exposed to these chemicals at a very young age they will remain in the child's body until retirement we're talking about their entire lifetime. And these chemicals build up. These chemicals cause a variety of really, really dangerous health effects. And only now are scientists really putting together the pieces and understanding just how extensive the problems are. The EPA, the American EPA, they just dropped the safety limit in the water for guidelines by basically it's so low that if they can detect it, then it means it's hazardous to human health. So in Hawaii, also in Okinawa, these chemicals have been discovered in the drinking water, and they've been discovered at levels much, much higher than the EPA recommends. So I really think people need to get their blood checked. They need to limit the amount of drinking water that they take from these contaminated sources, and they really understand just how deadly these chemicals are in even small doses. So tell us about the Okinawan story. In Okinawa, the government, Okinawan Prefecture, they discovered PFAS forever chemicals in the water in 2016. They found the chemicals near Cadena Air Base, which is the largest American military base in in this area of the world. And the military has not allowed on-base checks. The military refuses to allow local government officials or even the Japanese government to enter the base to check for contamination. So as a journalist, as an investigative journalist, I've been using the Freedom of Information Act to investigate the problem. And according to the records that I've obtained, there have been many spills with these firefighting chemicals. There have been many accidents with these chemicals. And we managed to put together the different pieces and find out how the military had contaminated the water for almost half a million Okinawans. And that's the subject of our documentary. The documentary is a combination 
combination of investigative journalism, it's a combination of a reflection on 50 years of Okinawa's return to Japanese control, and also it's a reflection on why water is so vital and so important for human life. So is anything being done to filter the water out? Because the aquifer has been so badly contaminated by the military, the local authorities, they have had to stop using the aquifer. This aquifer is this essential human resource. It flows beneath the center of Okinawa's main island, but because it's been contaminated so badly, and because there are no plans to clean it up, and because the military won't even allow checks, then the local government has had to stop using the aquifer, and instead they've turned to using dams and using desalination uh, of seawater. So this is a problem that has impacted the lives of the vast majority of people living on Okinawa's main island. It's not only Okinawans, it's also military, it's also veterans, it's also dependents. So this is the biggest environmental catastrophe that has hit Japan in many, many years. And so what is being done to clean it up? There's no cleanup attempts. The military has not allowed any inspections of the base. Uh, the military has not allowed people to go in there and to test for soil samples. And so the only reason we know the military is responsible is because we have these Freedom of Information Act records, we have these archive photographs, and we also have American government reports that show that there was a firefighting training area that's contaminated the water beyond repair. And it's not only the water, it's the soil. And there's a children's playground. And in this children's playground, the soil has been contaminated at levels many, many higher than uh, safe standards. And this is next to Futema Air Base. And Futema Air Base had a firefighter training area, and the pipe from the base was flowing towards the school. And the only reason, again, we knew that was from the Freedom of Information Act. So this is a really, really important problem. And I hope everyone comes out to watch this documentary, because the comparisons of what's happening at Red Hill are really, really important for people to understand. And these air bases, those are still operational? And with are, are there plans to close them at all? I know they're planning to close the um, Marine base. Okinawa has 31 American military bases. 70% uh, of the military bases in Japan are located in this tiny island of Okinawa. And putting the bases into that small space, it concentrates the contamination as well. And so even if the base closes, then this contamination is going to be still there in the ground. And it's going to cost billions and billions of dollars to clean up. Because of the bilateral agreements between America and Japan, America doesn't pay for the cleanup. It's people like me, Japanese taxpayers, who pay 100% of the remediation costs. Because of these bilateral agreements, Japanese authorities cannot enter. The Japanese authorities cannot arrest service members who commit crimes against the environment. So there's this terrible unbalance uh, between the rights of the military and the rights of citizens living in Japan. And Okinawa bears this burden. What got you so focused on Okinawa in this situation? Uh, my great-grandfather was a victim of chemical weapons in World War I. Um, he was gassed in the trenches of northern Europe. And so ever since I was a little boy, I've really been aware of how the military harms the environment and how the military harms human health. So I started to research, first of all, about Agent Orange, the defoliant, and its usage on Okinawa. And as I was researching about Agent Orange, I got documents from the military that revealed that they had many accidents involving PFAS. And so that was the main trigger uh, towards this investigation. I've written four Japanese books about this problem, and two years ago my English book, Poisoning the Pacific, uh, was a winner in the American Society of Environmental Journalists annual book awards. So the information is available, and I really hope that everyone will be able to learn more about this problem. Okay, and then there is a screening of this film on Saturday evening. There's going to be a, a there's going to be a discussion afterwards with the Board of Water Supply uh, uh, officials as well as the water protectors, the, the local group here. I think this is a good opportunity to create dialogue 
uh, between different groups. Um, after the showing of the documentary, then there'll be many different people talking about these issues, including from the water board, including from local communities. And hopefully everyone will be able to see the similarities and we'll be able to teach each other about these problems. And if folks are not able to attend this screening, will it be available online anywhere? Or We are hoping to release it uh, more widely later in the year. At the moment, we're entering into film festivals, uh, but then in the new year, it should be released. That was John Mitchell, investigative journalist who is in Honolulu to screen a film he co-directed entitled Nuchi Numiji uh, Okinawa's Water of Life. A discussion about water contamination in Hawaii will follow. That free event will be held at the Church of the Crossroads in Mo'ili'ili Saturday night starting at 6 p.m. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual info session for the 2023 Executive MBA is March 21st, scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Mark Gober, author of An End to Upside Down Contact. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about research of reported interactions with UFOs, aliens, and spirits. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. It wasn't that long ago that Oahu added a third boiler to its H-Power garbage to energy plant out on the west side. So do we need a second plant? Well, there's news of a bill to look at building a second facility, but the city says it didn't ask for it. HPR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote joins us to find out the backstory. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine, and happy Friday. Yes, Senate Bill 1247 passed out of Joint Committee last week, and it caught my eye because the language of the bill says that it will require the Hawaii State Energy Office to enter into a public-private partnership to develop a waste-to-energy generating facility. So, a lot of things in that, and I wanted to kind of unpack all of those details. One, the need for a waste energy facility, but also the role of the state in propelling an energy facility like this forward. So the person who proposed the bill was Kurt Favela. I got him on the phone earlier this week, and he said that he had proposed this bill because he sees it as a chance to serve his community in Eva Beach and other folks on the west side of Oahu have, who have been disproportionately impacted by landfills. He points to the negative health impacts of living close in close proximity to dump sites. We know that that can adversely help um, people's health outcomes and length of life. Act 73 supported the creation of buffer zones, trying to address this problem between landfills and residential communities. But Favela says that doesn't go far enough. He wants to transition away from landfills altogether, and he thinks that waste to energy is the answer. Okay, it's a bit of a head-scratcher because, will people want to live next to a, another garbage energy plant? Well, that's a question, and environmentalists in Hawaii are opposed to waste energy facilities because they say that they don't necessarily provide the solution in terms of um, the negative health outcomes that we would see for landfills. They still can pr um, produce toxic gases. They also leach certain materials into soil. That can all negatively impact people's health. The other aspect of this that is very peculiar is the role of the Hawaii State Energy Office. So the Energy Office is a state organization that works to promote renewable energy and the state's green goals generally. It has never entered a public-private partnership in order to promote one specific project, be it waste to energy, a waste energy facility or anything else. And in testimony in front of the companion bill, which was actually deferred in the House, Henry Curtis of the Life of Land pointed out that there might be some sort of 
ethical conflict if the state energy office had to advocate on behalf of a specific bill. It might erode what we see as a firewall between it and the Public Utilities Commission when it is trying to keep consumers in mind more generally in terms of energy goals. So I spoke to Mark Lick. He's the chief energy officer. And he said, you know, that might be a fair comment. No, I mean, I think that's a fair comment. Uh, I think Henry brings a, a good point about, um, you know, our our mission to be able to promote this uh, and do analysis in a very unbiased and critical way uh, is something that we've really enjoyed. And I think people, um, you know, the public ha has uh, high regard for our ability to do that. Uh, we certainly wouldn't want to do anything that would put that into question. So it is difficult once you uh, team up or you partner, you know, with a private sector entity, you know, you, you are now connected. So we, you know, I think that is a very serious question that needs to be um, carefully evaluated. You know, when I first heard about this bill, I wondered, is this a sweetheart deal for somebody? So I don't know. Did you ask a favela? I did ask favela, and he said, no, this is a bill that he proposed. There is a lot of strong union support for it. But when I reached out to the unions, they said that favela approached them, and they see it as an opportunity to help out their members who are impacted on the west side. Which union? Um, predominantly the Iron Workers mm. Alliance, as well as I think that there's six unions in total that came to testify in person on behalf of the Senate bill. The other thing that Favela said is that he doesn't have a developer in mind yet. He wants to see that there's state support, support for a waste energy facility before he starts to approach people who could actually turn this project into a real thing. But that raises another question. Do we need another waste energy facility? Do we need the real thing? It was remarkable to see that H-Power in its testimony actually opposed this bill. They said, while we appreciate you acknowledging that waste energy is valuable, we don't think that there's another power plant. And the Hawaiian Electric Company said, hey, H-Power as it is, is having trouble meeting its requirements in order to uh, meet its power purchase agreement standards. So Mark Lick also responded to that and just the general role of waste energy on Oahu. Certainly in Oahu, we know that H-Power you know, has constantly called for more feedstock and, and we simply don't have enough. So you know, many times these things are really driven by demand and, and demand of the resource and ways to effectively use it and convert it to, to in this case, energy. Uh, so I think we have questions about that as well. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's a, a perfect uh, solution, but, you know, I'm glad that we're having the discussion. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, but still a head-scratcher. <laughs> uh, certainly a head-scratcher. And H-Power was kind of grandfathered into our understanding of what renewable energy is, but it's hard to say whether or not waste energy is the right solution for a number of reasons for the challenges that we're facing and the green goal, uh, green energy goals that the state has. Yeah, and my understanding is that what DLNR was initially named in this bill, because they were looking at DLNR lands, but th they don't really support it support it either. Yeah, DLNR said, we don't know exactly what our role would be in this, and yeah. so that was stripped from the amendment in the bill. All right. Thank you so much, Sabrina. We've been chatting with HBR's Savannah Harriman-Pote. You can read more on this issue on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Reality Check today, Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Thomas Heaton looks at public school lunches. Should we be moving toward a centralized kitchen? Good morning, Thomas. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes. Well, it's almost lunchtime. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, so this, this concept of a centralized kitchen, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, right now we have, you know, various districts and certain schools act as kind of like a hub, right? And they create the lunches and then they, they farm it out to schools in that area. But a centralized kitchen... Yes, so the centralised kitchen model would essentially charge that central kitchen with cooking and preparing much of the food and then distributing it throughout 
um, the the islands essentially. So uh, this the first one that they're looking at is in on Oahu in Wahiwa. It's a thirty-five million dollar project that would follow as per um, Randy Tanaka, who is in charge of the uh, DOE's kind of food um, and uh, school meals program. Um, it would follow a model not dissimilar to Zippy's, which does a lot of its cooking in central kitchens, then distributes it to the various restaurants, and those restaurants might do some cooking as well, but uh, the brunt of it is done, the lion's share of it is done in those central facilities. Um, but there is a little bit of obscurity that uh, advocates are concerned about. Um, they feel like there's, you know, th this is a plan, um, but there doesn't seem to be in their eyes a plan for the plan like <laughs> okay. how is this going to happen <laughs> um, and the, the, there are some bills in the uh, legislature at the moment um, looking to decentralize which is quite the opposite of what the DOE is hoping to do. So I mean with a centralized kitchen you'd have one on Oahu which has been I guess identified to be built in Oahua and then there's what mm -hmm. one on each island and what about the big island? Yeah so big island there would be two um, I'm told that there might be one in Kona and there might be one in Hilo and then, you know, it would work that way. Um, but so so advocates are kind of raising concerns about this. Is it going to mean that the food is going to be just as good as it is now or at the level that it is now? Does it mean that the quality might decline? And of course in the background of all of this is the fact that DOE has been charged with acquiring 30% of its food locally by 2030. Um, and that has, you know, our DOE has the Department of Education has identified several hurdles um, to achieving that, such as farmers can't produce enough or as consistently as possible, um, and also the, the general attrition within the food service arm of the Department of Education. I mean, this is a bit of a head-scratcher to me. I mean, you know, logistically, mm -hmm. just rolling out all that food at one time to all these schools across Oahu is going to be a real challenge. I mean, you know, so that's one thing. And then, yeah, uh, can we, you know, get enough from the local farmers? I mean, that seems to be also a separate issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing that advocates say in, um, you know, decentralizing is that by charging complex areas with acquiring their food from local farmers, it will empower them to be able to be a little bit more flexible with their choices. Um, for filling their menus. But one key kind of sticking point that has been identified by the DOE is it estimates that it'll cost $10 million per kitchen to upgrade and get into working order to do scratch cooking. Um, but then again, there was an estimate, an assessment done um, on Kauai that found 11 schools to get them upgraded, it would cost $800,000 in total. So there's a little bit of um, disagreement here mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it certainly seems that there needs to be some uh, bridges that need to be kind of crossed and communication uh, that needs to be perhaps improved. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be penciling out uh, and, and I know this, this is a popular story on your website because people are, I think are scratching their heads too about is this a good idea, you know? Uh, so mm. yeah, we'll, we'll see how, how, uh, how this progresses. But, uh, but thanks so much. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for having me, and yes, I guess we'll see how things go. All right. We've been chatting with reporter Thomas Heaton for today's Reality Check to read the story about centralizing our kitchens for our public schools. Head to civilbeat.org. On the next Fresh Air, we remember two accomplished performers from different fields. Sharp-witted comedian Richard Belzer, probably best known for playing the dramatic role of Detective John Munch on several TV series, and Major League catcher and Hall of Fame broadcaster Tim McCarver. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention says our teens are in the throes of a mental health crisis. National girls' suicide rates rose 60% over the past decade. Hawaii's overall teen suicide rate is higher than average. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked with Dr. Bart uh, Pillen about what we as a community can do to help. Pillen is the behavioral health chief at Hawaii Pacific Health, and he's developed a teen resilience program to help coordinate clinicians and a support network, and he talks about why community matters. The teen resiliency program was really designed to assist existing services that better help with access of care for teens who are identified as being at risk for things like suicide, right? Right. Um, We didn't want them waiting for a long time before they got meaningful treatment. Many of the, the children would um, you know, be identified through contact at Kapilani Medical Center because they would show up at our emergency room uh, and be identified as being suicidal. So we have a behavioral health team that responds to those children. But the problem then is if they're not going to be hospitalized, how do we get them linked into services? So we'll have children and teens identified through primary care. Uh, So we needed somebody, when we have these initial contacts, to be able to follow, intensely follow, the teenager and the families and engage stakeholders until they can be bridged to meaningful services. Why do you think uh, there's such a high teenage suicide rate? I also noted that Hawaii has a higher than average suicide rate compared to the rest of the nation. Any guesses as to why this is? Sadly true. Uh, I do think that there has been traditionally a lack of, you know, qualified providers and also probably underfunding uh, traditionally in identifying kids. They would show up at school perhaps or their doctors or they would have a crisis. The pandemic really had an effect. Um, There you know, what we knew is that before the pandemic in Hawaii, suicide was the second leading cause of death for our, our teenagers and young adults. When the pandemic um, impacted daily routines, social contacts, healthy family functioning, you know, it wasn't just the, the teens are suffering, of course, there was their families and all sorts of other psychosocial kind of concerns began to um, you know, arise and really make life harder for teens. Uh, even their reintegration into school or other activities has been difficult for many people who might have had a lag in school or a disruption in their their college plans and the such. Those are all the factors that um, have played a role. The Mental Health America did a survey of all the states in terms of mental health need. And there's a huge disparity in Hawaii between adult care versus, you know, pediatric care. We rank 49th in out of 51 states or territories in our nation for youth who need treatment but who do not get it. And we're at the 50th um, rank out of 51 for consistent treatment for kids who really need it. Right. And what do you think are some of the causes for this? Why are we ranked so low? Is there economic situation that we're all facing in this state? Is there a cultural outlook upon uh, asking and receiving mental health care? Why are we, you know, ranked 50th? This is pretty terrible. Yeah, it is. It's really terrible. It's a crisis, in fact. I think we have a lot of concerned folks, but probably not enough providers and people embedded in kind of key gatekeeping roles. Like the schools have been doing a lot more to focus on this, and the Department of Health has initiated some programs specifically for teens. Unfortunately, we've underfunded um, treatment for for kids, and so they have gone un, unnoticed, really. In addition, we've had this 
huge gap between the need and the providers. And many of the people who we train, for example, at Kapilani Medical Center, we're a site for training child psychiatrists, child and adolescent psychiatrists. And if they stay, that's wonderful, but many of them will return to the continental United States because they can pursue careers outside of Hawaii much, that are much more lucrative for them. Brain drain and lack of providers, and meanwhile, it's um, Alice families have increased over the pandemic tremendously. Those are families families? who are one, basically one uh, paycheck or one expense away from, you know, financial catastrophe. And uh, so you will find that those are the families with food insecurity or insecure, you know, living arrangements. If their car breaks down or they lose a job or somebody gets ill, then it's going to affect everyone in the family. And they'll be more at risk for things like homelessness or uh, not enough food in the household or school disruption. What are some signs to look for if your child is potentially suicidal? Well, that's an excellent question. I think that if you, you know, every every parent, I think, understands their children's baseline. You know what they usually like to do and, you know, how engaged they are in activities like um, at school or social activities. So if you have uh, a youngster, a teenager who's kind of robustly involved with school activities, sports, they have a variety of friends, that's great. If that gets disrupted, their grades go, go south. Uh, they kind of back away from school issues and, and, and procrastinate too much and get failing grades. They start to withdraw, not just from friends, but you know, family members as well, getting way behind in their schoolwork, absences from school, social conflict, peer conflicts, those sorts of things. If you see outbursts of frustration or sadness or tearfulness and lack of communication, those are the early red signs. But a lot of times people will just frankly say, I feel like dying and, and families need to take that very seriously. You know, if you can if you can intervene before that happens, that's that's great. But do not take lightly anybody saying that they wanted to harm themselves or they wish they were dead or that their life is worthless. That's um, when a parent should respond and get some evaluation from their medical provider. The, they, they could call their insurance for resources. They can uh, even call emergency hotlines that are set up to provide access to care for families. Are there other programs that are like this, sort of intervention resiliency programs that exist in other states? Is this modeled upon another program that has been tested, or is this something that we're innovating here in Hawaii? So way back in the 1980s, there were programs called assertive community treatment teams that would identify people who are at risk in the community. So instead of coming to the hospital or a clinic, they would send out mental health workers who were trained to identify people at risk, whether it was substance use or you know suicide or chronic mental illness, and intervene. Those programs had a very good track record in the community mental health literature. What we're trying to do here, of course, is to implement something similar so that when we have a contact in a medical center, whether it's emergency department or primary care, then we can follow that family immediately so that they don't have to wait for three months before they see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, right? Right. And this is where the kids are at greater risk. Recently, it, in Massachusetts, there's a hospital that implemented basically a team of people to intervene. And instead of hospitalizing uh, teenagers psychiatrically, they gave them the option to be involved with a team that was community-based like this. And they have been very successful in diverting patients from long boarding stays in the emergency department or psychiatric hospitalizations that are very costly. It's modeled on those sorts of programs, which are well-researched. So what you're talking about really is an attempt to build community within the context of providing and looking out for our young people. So what we're really facing is an erosion of community, and this program is supposed to ideally help rebuild it. Am I right? 
Yeah, it does. It really That's a great way to put it, uh, Stephanie, because it's really about bridging services and getting people who usually don't communicate to talk about this teenager, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so that it's, it's not um, fragmented or siloed care. So do you think that there's more of an awareness of suicide and teenage depression or is and people are becoming more vocal about it or is it actually rising rates? Um, it's definitely rising rates, so I think people are noticing it more. You know, I give credit to teenagers um, and other folks, young adults who are a lot more open, especially on things like social media, about saying, hey, this is a problem. I'm depressed, or I worried about my friend who is suicidal. Look at the people you have contact with, not just your kids, but your, own, your, your children's friends, for example. Look at the organizations, whether it's a sports team, a school, a church. If you have concerns about any of the youth that we, we were responsible for, act on it. You know, call your pediatrician, for example. You can call Hawaii Cares Line, which is a Department of Health uh, 24-7, you know, line where you can get consultation and consult with people. Don't, don't sit on your hands because that paralysis of analysis can just make it worse. And from a teenager's perspective, that isolation is only going to be magnified if we just don't respond because we don't know what to do, right? right? So it's better to talk about it and to build into those community organizations as well a responsiveness to this. That was Hawaii Pacific Health's Chief of Behavioral Health, Dr. Bart Pillen, speaking with HPR's Stephanie Hahn about Hawaii's mental health crisis and what steps we can take to assure that teenagers obtain the help that they need. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. What comes to mind when you think of sorrow? Sadness? Despair? How about joy? Joy is the evidence of our reaching across to one another in the midst of, or as a way even, of caring for one another's sorrows. Then it seems to me the case that without sorrow, it's something else. Poet Ross Gay makes the case for finding joy in sorrow. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Lawmakers are considering a bill that would increase the annual tax credit to attract more movie and television productions to film here in the islands. Meanwhile, Hawaii's film industry continues to look at ways to increase acting opportunities for Native Hawaiians. Hollywood has had a presence here for more than 100 years, but the on-screen opportunities for Native Hawaiians, Kanaka Maoli, have remained limited. Jason Momoa's upcoming uh, TV series, Chief of War, is the most recent major production to dramatize a story from Hawaii's history. But when Maori actors were cast in the majority of the main roles, many Hawaiians took to social media to vent their frustration. Why were local actors passed over, and what kind of progress have Native Hawaiian actors actually made? The conversations Russell Subiano sat down in our studio with Hawaii State Film Commissioner and Native Hawaiian Donnie Dawson and Emmy-winning uh, uh, casting director Katie Doyle. We start with Dawson. I'm always saying that there are so many elements that come in to play when you are talking about a film or television production. So many layers and so many 
junctures for things to change or go awry, that it is nothing short of miraculous, Mm -hmm. that you have a wonderful finished product at the end of the day. I think, and I'm going to let Katie talk about specifically on the casting issues, but a couple points I want to make. One is that there was a very challenging element at play at the front end where it became very clear that due to limitations, size of budget and limitations on our existing tax credit program, Mm -hmm. that they were going to have to film a significant chunk of the project in Aotearoa Mm -hmm. and New Zealand. And because of that, that could have come into play uh, the the actors that they were going to be looking for, because obviously you've got to maintain that continuity Mm -hmm. for characters here, whether they're filming here or they're filming there. The other point I want to make is that Hawaii, Kanaka Maoli are ancestrally connected to the Maori very, very closely. And the idea that our cousins, our ancestral cousins, so to speak, are going to be playing roles that are Kanaka roles is something to be considered. And then on top of that is just this idea that as Polynesians and indigenous people, We are very sensitive to each other's stories, and we are very protective of each other's stories. And I think it can be said that the Maori people, they took this kuleana, if you will, of taking on these roles for a very specific Hawaii, Hawaiian story, because they knew that that wasn't their story. But I like to look upon it as more of a partnership with them and the fact that it wasn't that Hawaii lost the entire project to New Zealand. It was the fact that they were going to assist us in telling this story in the most authentic manner possible so that at the end of the day it would be something that Kanaka Maoli could be proud of. And then finally just the idea that Hawaii is not as developed a jurisdiction as the country of New Zealand is. And it's important to remember we are a state and we aspire to take on a lot of what New Zealand has done in their film industry and how they are elevated the industry, particularly in their indigenous community. So for me, it's a teachable moment. It's a teachable moment for our government to say, hey, you want to play with the big leagues, we're going to have to up our game. From my perspective, it also seems like the New Zealand film industry is like a big brother to the Hawaii film Very industry. Much. And we can learn a lot, right? Very much. From like a, a boots on the ground level, Katie, what is involved in casting that the general public may not know about that factored into this decision and, and some others that have happened in the past? This was such a ginormous project. Yeah. And we recognized the responsibility we would have prior to coming on board. First and foremost, I want to say that you never can win an argument on the internet. Mm -hmm. This is what we advise everybody about. And, you know, we're human, so you want to respond to things. But I think it's completely understandable how there was some animosity and hurt feelings because it is such a real story And whenever you're basing something on history, the emotional level is off the charts. You cannot comprehend the number of pieces of correspondence with pages and pages of history that people were submitting to us. And and I also want to say that each and every one of those was read. Mm -hmm. Each and every one of those was forwarded to producers, director, writers, etc. The responsibility was felt on all levels of production, something that I think our local talent pool didn't know is that we worked on this show for over a year and saw and auditioned and read and spoke with literally hundreds and hundreds of indigenous Hawaiian people. So I think that was the first level of maybe a miscommunication or misunderstanding. This came to us from, you know, one person's vision and dream that we all know. And 
felt very strongly about it. So in terms of the process and how some of these roles didn't go to some people who felt they either deserved them or knew people who deserved them, I can almost assure you that if it was somebody who's been in the acting community, they were seen, they were heard, and in some instances called back for numerous sessions with not just the casting director here, but the casting director of fabulous woman named Denise who has done A-list movies and the production team, writers, directors, and the person who conceptualized the project. So that's a backstory that most people don't know and it still won't make them feel better that they didn't get a role. But the level, the skill level of the people that did book these roles, their credits counted. Because this is based on history, Russell, and an amazing history, but it's still a TV show, right? So you're talking millions and millions of dollars and taking a risk on more than a, you know, there are quite a few people that will be in this show that will surprise everyone who have little or no experience, who are incredibly authentic. I'm getting chicken skin, that's how I know, and I need to be very careful because we do sign multiple pages of non-disclosures, but I want to assure you that the people at the helm of this project were the people who should have been at the helm of this project. And the things Donnie talked about in terms of infrastructure, support of our industry, we are learning every day. It is, It has been a teachable or number of teachable moments for this particular show. But I want to go back to the fact that we should be celebrating some of our successes. I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, how about five years ago? Right. We wouldn't have had anybody on this show in a significant role because the producers would have been too frightened mm-hmm. to take the risk. Because people are coming to do shows, some of which stay for multiple seasons, some of the films that come are no longer just coming for the one or two scenes for a couple of months. They're shooting the bulk of the show here. Mm -hmm. Because of things like the White Lotus and people like Mike White, who have adopted us as their home Mm -hmm. and really want to share a different perspective with people, because those people within the industry have taken the risks we are getting more chances. We used to cast maybe one or two people in principal roles on a feature film or a series. You know, the one-liners, yes, they, they would let us do that because the whole project was, you know, predicated <laughs> on the fact that they would have to cast financially, locally, a certain number of people. Well, now, for I'm going to say Hallmark. I, I bring them up because I love those folks. They come in. They've been here for a number of years. They treat us all very well. They respect us, they respect the land. The last show we did, we cast every character except number one and two on the call sheet. Wow, local. Local. Wow. That is a tremendous success story. And it does not happen overnight. I think it's important to point out that we are making progress and that we can look at the progress that we've been making as a people in this industry over the last few years. I mean, think about 2009 when Princess Kailani came out. We have a film about a historical figure where the lead ends up being played by a Native American. And then in 2019, there was that film about that Japanese pilot that crash landed on Niihau, and they hired a guy from New York to play the lead role and then there wasn't, you know, there was some backlash, and so they ended up hiring a Polynesian to end, ultimately play. And that. they ended up filming in Malaysia, right? Because right. they would yes. not have been right. able right. to film right. here and right. get out of Hawaii successfully. It yeah. was there was a yeah. lot of pushback on yeah. that for that very reason. And so I think when you look at the progress that we've made, I feel like there's much to be celebrated. And I've talked to a lot of actors, a lot of filmmakers, both here and on the mainland uh, working in the industry, and they feel like progress is being made, maybe not at the pace that a lot of people would like to see, but Donnie, can you talk about the progress that we have made in terms of you know telling Hawaiian stories with Hawaiian actors? Well, I just came back from Sundance, and there were probably the most Kanaka Maoli representation there as filmmakers that have come up through the ranks of Sundance in their Native Lab program and as Sundance Fellows, and it was really inspiring, and I'd never seen that before. Katie, what are you seeing from 
local actors. Do you see an increase? Do you see local actors getting better and better? Oh my God, yes, Russell, yes. It's been so exciting. It's the best time to be in the industry as a casting person because we are seeing people start to shine. They're getting these bigger roles, which means they're getting better. They're using those muscles. And yes, 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 the challenge will always be that the better they get, the more the likelihood is that they're going to get on a plane and move to someplace where there's more production happening. So that's another incentive for us to get more to come here. We want to keep the people who we've been nurturing from that one line where they were so nervous to say hello to the principal walking into the scene to carrying the scene as a co-star or even a star in in something. You know, if we were to do the Princess Kaiulani story today, I can name three actresses who I would be pushing for. Absolutely. Not to say that I can make that you know, that's the other misconception is that I or Rachel has the definitive deciding factor. It's usually a team effort. So you have to be looking and be ready and able and flexible and willing to pivot on a dime. You know, as Kanaka Maoli, we are consummate storytellers, but you have to have the the desire and the, 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 the skill to be able to tell those stories effectively and authentically. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Mahalo Mahalo. to you. Mahalo, Mahalo. Russell. That was State Film Commissioner Donnie Dawson and local casting director Katie Doyle talking to HBR's Russell Subiono. Dawson says Hawaii's film industry has more than quadrupled since 2001, going from $80 million a year in direct expenditures to close to a half a billion dollars today. I know I put my heart into it every chance that I get. So rhyme spit a go get up with a Polynesian twist. Work hard for my queen and the both of our kids. So I can build a better future for us like my father did. Yo, time is only borrowed. Don't ever take it for granted. Stay true to your roots. Gotta keep your feet planted. You don't wanna wander off and the pain and the cost. And so many good warriors, lives we've lost. And I'll be sitting reminiscing about the time. Well, that's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we learn about those forever chemicals lurking in our landfills. Plus, Hawaii's first stand-up comic, Andy Bumatai, talks to us ahead of his first tour in years. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. 